Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode number 23. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and today we have a special guest, Jay Pestricelli, back on the program, founder of Zega Financial and acclaimed author, I guess, right, Jay? How are you? I, I'm doing great, Derek. Thanks for having me back. Of course, of course. Well, we may do. We may wind up doing the, a part two of this because uh, we we're a little bit pressed for time, but we've got. Uh, we're going to get into a couple things, and you know, Jay, I I thought this was a good idea. You and I always talk about sort of correlations and the idea of of hedging versus doing things with bonds and the sixty four forty portfolio. And I, you know, one of the things I I kind of look at is the idea of a sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds. Is that a myth? I mean, it's this, this idea that over many, many years, people say, well, you can't do anything better than a 60-40. You know, we think being long equities and, and being 100% in equities, but having a hedge is a better, you know, approach to it. But I don't know, Jace. I, I, my, my comment on that is that is, you know, kind of the widely accepted modern portfolio theory approach to long-term investing. And while the name implies that it's modern. It's really not. It was developed in the 1950s. It's 70 years ago. The market is a very different place now than it was when that concept was uh, evaluated and tested and did prove to have some merit, but the world is a different place today, right? There's no reason to invest like your grandfather. No. And I mean, I, I think also what people sometimes misunderstand about results. And so, you know, I've talked about this recently and this idea between you have a nominal return, which is just, hey, what did you get in a return? And if you add up all the returns and you divide by the number of instances, that's your average annual return. What somebody actually realizes is their compounded return. And we can talk about that. But then this is also this thing about, you know, if you earn, let's say 5%, and I'm going to go after bonds just a little bit, Jay, but if you earn 5% in bonds, but inflation was 4%, you really, after inflation, the back of the napkin is plus one. It's actually less. And so, you know, one of the things I did is I looked at 1928 to 2018. I looked at 19, I don't know, the 60s uh, to 2018. And one of the things you realize is the real return annualized on the 10-year bond, and that's the total return, is about 2%. And so one of the challenges, I think, Jay, with holding bonds on 40% of your portfolio is what are you really getting on a real basis? Yeah, you know, maybe, Derek, it's worth just digging in a little bit what you mean about, uh, uh, you know, real returns. Maybe it might be helpful uh, to give an example that everybody could apply, right, So to, to their everyday life. And, you know, we've always talked about the cost of a loaf of bread, you know, today versus 30 years ago. But I think it's more important to compare, say, salaries or the cost of a home. You know, when you look at what a home cost in, uh, you know, the 60s and the 70s, compare it to today, it's almost ridiculous. Like, you know, hey, you can't buy a house for $40,000 now, but guess what? You could back then, you know, like that kind of a, it's that kind of impact we're talking about when you look at the real return and what inflation can do to values over time. You want to, do you have any color you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, and I think it's, uh, I'm doing this from memory, but, you know, I, I did something, if you made $100,000 in 2018, I think that was the equivalent to earning about nineteen or $20,000 in 1976. And so it's the same, meaning your $20,000 was essentially like having $100,000 today in purchasing power. And so, and that's, Jay, as you know, with, with clients and with uh, advisors working with clients and if you're not keeping up with inflation, you're losing purchasing power. I mean, all the stuff that you need to buy, especially in retirement, 
is getting more expensive. And so real returns really matter. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I can't tell you how many people, Derek, I speak to that say, well, I, I need, you know, I only need $50,000 a year. And that may be true today. In 20 years, that 50000 could be dramatically higher. And if your portfolio isn't geared to offset the cost of inflation, you'll find yourself, you know, trying to live off something that really isn't going to hold you. You know, when you think about inflation too, and uh, we might as well just get into it, right? And, and gold is one of those things that often people say, look, I'm going to hold gold as a hedge on inflation. It's a hedge against really bad market returns. And it's a hedge if, you know, something geopolitical happens in the world. You know, thinking about gold in the late 1970s into, I'd say, 80, 81, gold jumped. It had quite a bit of run. Interestingly enough, too, and I think it was 2007, through the financial crisis, uh, and maybe a little bit beyond there, gold had another one of those, you know, runs, even though inflation wasn't necessarily present. But there's a period, Jay, from 2000 until I think it was 2016, 2017, that the real return on gold was something like, and I'm, I'm using, I may be rounding here, about negative 2% annualized real return, meaning after inflation on gold. So gold is one of those things that people a lot of times hold in the portfolio, but it, it doesn't pay a dividend and it might sort of be dead money for a lot of years. I couldn't agree more with you. You know, gold is, um, it, it has been, you know, a vehicle to consider as a hedge or an offset uh, against inflation in the past. Again, the market is a different place today. I think there are better tools at our disposal. Uh, listen, not not all things are better in the market today than they were you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But one of the great things is you have more tools for protection. You have better ways to manage a long-term portfolio. And you know, gold just doesn't, there's a reason why the price has hardly moved over the last decade, right? It's, it's just, it's, you know, not to steal a Zeppelin line, right? But all that glitters is not gold, right? Anymore, right? And so <laughs> I think, sorry, I have to throw it in there talking about gold. But uh, I, I think it's 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 worth considering that while having some gold is interesting as its own individual asset class, but as a hedge and as a protection vehicle, I think uh, the luster has come off. No, and I agree. I mean, it's, it's uh, it, you know, it's interesting too, Jay. I mean, you and I both delve and deal and, and live in the options world. And I think you mentioned that portfolio theory and modern portfolio theory and, and asset allocation, a lot of the ideas go back many, many years. You know, options in the grand scheme of things are a relative new phenomenon. I mean, really, you and I were in the markets in the 90s, and I mean, not a lot of people used options. And I, one of the things that, that I wonder about is, are people using options to hedge more than they're using something with gold because there's just a little bit more of a defined, you know, outcome that you can build. Yeah, I mean, it takes a long time to shift the trends of investing and investing process. And uh, while you and I know there's no better way to mathematically manage your risk than with the use of options, you don't have to rely on things like correlation and inverse correlation and you know, oh, there was an exception why this didn't work, but the last eight out of eight times it did work, but not when you really needed it. Like those things, you know, don't exist when you use options because you're mathematically, uh, you know, managing your portfolio. And I, without getting into too much detail there, you're right, Derek, it is going to take time for the world to continue to adopt options. However, there is an exponential growth when it comes to the number of option contracts traded year over year. And so, 
Um, it's great that professionals like you and I have embraced options. We think they're great. We think that they should be applied to the individual investor portfolio. It's just that they are a little co- more complicated. And you know, having somebody help you with them and getting a little education on options, unfortunately, is, is a barrier that you know bonds and stocks, there's a lot less of a barrier. And so it's just easier. But easier should not mean better, especially when it comes to managing risk. So you're right. I think the world is adopting options. We wish more people would do it. I wish everybody would hedge. I wish everybody would use options for protection and managing their risk. Um, it's it's why you and I have these conversations all the time. And so, uh, Derek, I just I think it's going to take time, but it's time worth investing because I can't think of, you know, besides you know family, that's hard to find anything more important than how you're protecting yourself and your family monetarily. Yeah, you know, we'll probably get some emails about, you know, from the gold bugs on this. Uh, they'll say, wait a second, you know, and uh, it's worked in the past. And uh, But I think one of the things you have to look at is sort of the, the your cost of carry and, and what's your annualized cost uh, to actually hedge a portfolio. You know, in bonds is interesting, too, because we think about the 60-40, 40% in bonds, and the 40% could be, let's say, the U.S. aggregate bond index, or it could be an ETF, it could be treasuries or corporates. But, you know, you look at these things, and I did a lot of work uh, just looking at digging into some of the numbers about the nominal returns, the not even after inflation. And one of the things I realized was that over long periods of time, a bond's, you know, average return is right around what its average yield was. And so when I look forward and I say, look, you know, treasuries, the 10-year treasury, you know, I didn't look today, but it's around, you know, two, three, two, four, two, five, right? A 30-year is is not much more. And so I, I think it's pretty realistic to think if yields are here on a nominal basis, not even accounting for inflation, after inflation, they're next to nothing. But I mean, somebody holding bonds should probably you know, anticipate getting around what they're yielding. And if that's what they're getting, it's 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 a little bit of a dead space. And I, and I, I maybe that's a little too strong correlate, you know, statement about it, but I just don't think bonds are going to get what they did in the past, especially given where yields are and given that we're not falling from very high yields. Yeah, listen, if you could live off 2% growth, great. There's not many people, though, that we talk to that 2% is enough to meet their ongoing needs. And so, you know, we, we understand the, the dynamics of each individual investor is different. But if you're only getting the return of what the yield is here, um, you know, it's it's... I don't, I don't know how you grow your portfolio using bonds, right, these days, right? But there's, there's a place for them in certain situations, right? But as a core holding in your portfolio, as a driver of growth, I just, I think you're right. I think it's, it's, it's just, they, they don't provide. Yeah, and that's, and that's the nominal return. I mean, if we have, if you get 2% nominal and you have 2% inflation, and who knows what inflation is going to be. You're it's like even, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. You're, 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 break you're, even is good for you, great. Yeah. And really what you have is the characteristics of almost a, a tips bond. Of course, tips are treasury in, inflation protected securities. They're, they're issued by the U.S. government. And the idea is that they come out, they have a, you know, usually a lower yield. And if inflation vis-a-vis the CPI, you have an increase, your bond's price will increase. There's some, some different taxation elements there. But, you know, some people look at tips and say, maybe I'll buy a bunch of these. And while it's true, you should keep up with inflation. Uh, really, you're not going to have that much that exceeds inflation and really grows your money. Now, one of the other things that I think you know we think about is, okay, so we've got uh, 
you know, we, we can look at bonds, we can look at tips, we can look at gold. Uh, we can look just plainly at diversification. But Jay, I think one of the things that you and I talk about a lot is diversification. You know, there's systematic market risk and there's individual stock risk. And diversification can certainly diversify away, you know, the CEO walking out in handcuffs and the stock going down. But systematic market risk, one of the things we saw in 2008, we saw it in some of these, you know, these fragility sell-offs that we've sort of had over the last couple of years, we've had these deep drawdowns, is it really doesn't matter what you have, and I'm, I'm using air quotes, right? But when the market, when you need diversification the most, markets tend to sell off and everything sells off, you know, Europe and, you know, all the different sectors, right? Yeah, listen, when it, when stocks are bad, they're bad for everybody, right? It's, it's, um, it has to be, you know, there's asset classes are linked, right? You, it's, it's rare. I can't think of a case where it's, uh, you know, dump U.S. stocks and roll wholeheartedly into an international uh, uh, holding or dump large cap and roll into small cap. It's what happens is, right, they, they are they are linked in a way that as you are selling something, um, you are forced to sell winners along with your losers. Right. I mean, as you're doing rotations. And so we, we have seen this where, you know, when things get nasty, all asset classes get correlated. Right. It's it's why you need. Uh, and by the what I mean by that is when one group goes down dramatically, it usually uh, infects all other groups and they go down as well. And so the concept of diversification is great in kind of a normal operating market while things are going up. And if you want to pick a tech sector over, say, financials or utilities, that that could provide uh, some alpha, meaning a little outperformance. But when it all goes, it all goes together. And being diversified across different stock classes isn't going to protect you. And we have seen this time and time again. This isn't just, you know, uh, uh, hyperbole here. This is time and time again, asset classes uh, uh, and qualifications across the stock market will all drop. And so I don't, you know, we, we, maybe some drop a little less than others, but it's they are very highly correlated when things get dislocated in the markets. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I think so. And I think one of the things that's interesting about asset allocation, Jay, and, and made me think from what you're you're describing is this idea of of non-correlation. And you know, a lot of these portfolios that are diversified rely on historical correlations. And what I mean by that is, if you go back and you look, let's say, from 2008 through 2018, and you look at the correlation, let's say, between the S&P 500, which is, you know, of course, if we're using an ETF, that would maybe be the SPY to something like the 10-year treasury bond, and you're using total returns. You know, from, from 08 until 2018, um, and correlations can run from positive one to negative one, meaning positive one, they move in lockstep, they completely, completely correlate, they do everything the same. And you know, negative one would be stocks go up 10%, bonds go down 10%, complete opposite. Well, there was a really nice non-correlation of about minus 0.72 S&P to 10-year uh, U.S. Treasury bonds. And that's one of the reasons why you know, a lot of people look at that period and say, look, you know, buying 10-year bonds or 15 or 20-year treasuries really worked. Um, there's a couple things to think about there. Uh, I looked at, you know, just pulling some random data here, 62 to 18, and the correlation went, instead of being negative 72, was 0.08. Still not completely correlated, but, you know, part of uh, reducing standard deviation, reducing risk relies on these non-correlations. And, and one of the things that I'm wondering about, and I could be wrong, and, and this is just, you know, we'll talk out loud here, is 
maybe in in the next type of downturn, what if it's some rise in yields that causes bond prices to depress, which causes the equity market to to depress? And so for me, you know, building these 60-40 portfolios based upon historicals, if you get something different, people might be in for a shock. Yep. And, you know, it's interesting on that study that you did, and while you did see the expected inverse performance, right? Bonds went up as stocks went down from uh, stocks went down from time to time during that time period. Um, on a risk-adjusted basis, Derek, was it still worth it? Was it still, you know, hey, this was a so much better uh, approach than what you and I are talking about? Because actually, we've been hedging that whole time, right? That last decade, 08 to through 2018, we have been hedgers. We have been investing. Was it better to have 60-40 or is it better to manage your risk directly? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the this is the crux of the discussion today, right? And so when we talk about a risk-adjusted return, we're using something like a sharp ratio. And the sharp ratio has its benefits and its disadvantages and pros and cons. But you look at a sharp ratio, it, it, it gives, looks at your return minus what you could have got on a risk-free basis. So if you're looking at a one-year time frame, Maybe you could buy a, a one-year treasury and you say, thank you very much. That's from the U.S. government. There's really no risk here. I'll take my return. At the end of the year, I get my money back, right? And then you divide it by your standard deviation. And so it's interesting. If you look at 2008 to, or sorry, 2008 to 2018, uh, I'll give you a couple numbers here. The sharp ratio, and one is considered really good, anything more than one. So higher, the better. The sharp ratio was right about 0.70, so you know, not too bad. 62 to 2018, the sharp ratio is 0.32, and it it's I did it from 28 until uh, you know more recent too, and it was about you know it was still pretty low. And one of the things that's really interesting, Jay, is that you know everyone talks about risk-adjusted returns, everyone talks about the benefits of 60-40. But the sharp ratio wasn't that great. And interestingly enough, and I'll let you address this, you know, just buying the S&P and using a hedged equity strategy has a better risk-adjusted return basis. Yep, no doubt. Um, actually, I think in your study, right, when you add bonds to the, to the, to the portfolio or the long term, you actually show very little additional risk-adjusted return. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Sixty-two to eighteen, uh, it was 0.326 on just the S and P real return, and 0.33 on sixty forty. So basically the same. Basically the same. So adding the bonds over that long term, that long period of investing, didn't really add uh, additional uh, risk adjusted benefit. Meaning it, the money wasn't worth investing that way, right? It didn't make that much of a difference. And actually, what you did in that scenario was you actually restricted your growth over that time period. Now, you did it in a less volatile way, meaning your portfolio up and downs were a little less, but it wasn't worth it. It really wasn't worth making that change. And so, um, yeah, when we talk about investing, um, it's really it's really important um, when it comes to growth. If you're in need of growth, we are planning these days that uh, our clients are going to live to 90 years old, 85, 90 years old. And you know, there is a long period of time of investing that's necessary to make your money last that long. And this is not news to anybody. Everybody knows this already. So what do you do? Well, you have to invest in um, in, in markets that are going to meet that need. And for us, investing in the stock market is one of the best ways to capture growth. Unless you're you know, going to start your own company and sell it for $10 million every five years, 
you know, most average Americans need growth in the market to uh, uh, to realize their 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 potential and their needs. And so, you have to have exposure to the stock market. And limiting that, being too conservative on exposure to the stock market, can be prohibitive. But you also know you can't take the risk of a minus 40% year or 38% year like 2008 saw. And so, um, you know, you need to take those bad years out of the equation, but capture all the benefits of the upside of the market. And so the long and short of this is, Derek, you you know this, I know this, um, investing in a way that limits your downside, being hedged, but still captures the upside, um, is the modern way of investing and will give you a better risk-adjusted return. Because when you could take out those really bad years, when you could limit your losses to, I don't know, a, a, a nominal rate, whether it's 8%, 10%, 15%, wherever your limit is going to be, when you could limit the participation in the downside, but continue to be invested in the upside growth of the stock market, that is the thing that delivers superior risk-adjusted returns. Yeah, by the way, Jay, I'm just looking, just isolating the 10-year Treasury bond, uh, you know, real return of about 2.2% uh, on a geometric real return, and that's, you know, deals with compounding. Its sharp was only like 0.11, uh, not not great on its own basis. And by the way, I, you know, the, the challenge with using every investment prospectus says past performance does not equal future results, but what does everybody do? Everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, I'm using air quotes, right? But everyone looks at, Hey, we're going to use historical prices to try and price out what's going to happen in the future. And I don't know about you, but I have a, an issue with using, you know, 40 and 50 years worth of treasury bonds or, or different types of bonds that were yielding much higher amounts. And I just think going forward, it's, it's really, I don't want to say dangerous, but it's, it's, um, it, I wouldn't expect the same types of returns given where yields are going forward. And, and to your point, Jay, just buying the market, getting the majority of an upside return, uh, missing out on the majority of the downside has a risk, better risk-adjusted return scenario, and you don't have the drag that bonds. I mean, the drag is really that you've got to pay a little bit for the protection, but you get to invest in the better stuff. I shouldn't say better, but the chance for higher upside, right? Yes, I think I think you're you're being very deliberate and careful about the <laughs> words that you're picking, and I can appreciate <laughs> that there. But I think your point is, hey, you know, uh, putting your money, uh, comparing how your money inve- is invested today isn't fair to all the history used of building that model, right? So uh, we were looking back at that data and it wasn't so long ago that there were double digit returns on a treasury, right? Inflation was higher, but if you could get double digit returns on a treasury, like 10% or more, okay, that may be interesting to you, but that's not the reality of today. Today, you know, we've been hovering in this 2%, 2 or 3% range for years, uh, even lower, uh, you know, say five, six, seven, eight years ago. And so, you know, you, you have to use today's data. And so it's almost like, uh, uh, you know, judging algebra based off of, you know, uh, pre-K math, right? It just, it doesn't, it may not be applicable to the math and the allocations that are being built using those older models. The great thing about options, and I, I know I'm hammering on this, is they are mathematically linked today. Right, you can use an option, and the great thing about an option is it will limit and and give you your growth potential and your loss potential today. Right, it's not like well, historically speaking, options have moved X Y Z when the market moves A B C. Nope, 
you don't need that. They mathematically limit uh, what your risk is going to be. And so that's the great thing about the portfolios you're building and we're building at Zega is um, you can define the outcomes of your portfolio pretty well. Yeah, no, that's right. And and I think also there's a couple benefits to me. You know, a lot of people try and time the market and we see this again and again. And, you know, it, it, I always joke around whenever somebody talks uh, and says, hey, you shouldn't try and time the market. They trot out the whole, if you miss the five best or 10 best days in the market and your your return is hurt. And, th- and that's not incorrect. That's correct. Uh, you know, you got to be in the market. But I think there's always a lot of fear in the market. And, you know, today, Jay recently, and I just did an episode explaining the yield curve. Uh, I'll link to that. But, you know, the yield curve inverted and everywhere you look on CNBC, there's, hey, there's a recession that's going to start here. The yield curve's inverted. Here's the average time to recession. By the way, at some point, we'll have another recession. Although I guess Australia is the longest running country without one. It's been quite some How time. How long has it been? I don't. I shouldn't have said that without looking it up. But you it's, did. <laughs> you, did. you blow it. <laughs> I don't, but I don't think they actually technically had one in 08. I could be wrong. Well, I'll have to update everybody. But at some point, there'll be a recession. But to me, it's, you know, a lot of times the crowd is wrong. And, you know, the rates have, are so low around the world. And the front end of the curve is what the Fed really controls. And, you know, the Fed funds rate is 2.4%. You'd expect the front end to be there and demand is on the back end. Then you'd expect yields to be lower. But this all sort of plays out to, you know, if if you get out of the market, let's say, or if you're you're afraid to invest and you're afraid because of what you're seeing on TV, to me, it's, it's uh, you know, the opportunity is to use the hedged equity strategy. And, you know, I know, I know we have a little bit remaining time. Jay, we'll have you, you back on. But this gets into the hedger's opportunity. I'm going to link to an article, Jay, you just published. I thought it was a good article. But to kind of round out things here, you know, not only can you hedge the downside, you can take away some of the timing, but there is that hedger's opportunity. Yeah. And, and you know, you touched, you just hit on a lot of great points and the whole uh, reason why we hedge. Um, I, I will tell you, one of the biggest points you brought up is market timing and emotion. You know, if you could take that out of the mix, your life as an investor becomes a lot less stressful for sure. But let's uh, let's touch base on the rest of that in another episode, Derek. But so thank you for having me on today. Yeah, of course. Uh, well, Jay, thanks for coming on. We'll have you on soon. Uh, for everyone else, I'll link to a couple of things we talked about, and we'll probably have Jay back for a episode number two. Adele, Jay, you're you're a frequent guest, you know. So we'll we'll have you back sooner than later, though. How's that? I'm happy to be back. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. 